top of the evening, everyone. I am Joseph Ford Cotto. Joining me tonight is Dr. Bob, a longtime viewer and very good friend of Cotto Gottfried. Uh, and now he is here to discuss the medical industry, healthcare business, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we are going to get into that. Uh, it's something which I have had uh, profound experience with as of late. Thankfully, a very positive experience uh almost totally uh so uh the, the, you know that being said that that's one man's experience talking about where the industry is headed on the whole is quite a different thing and uh, dr bob is a doctor uh a medical doctor uh dr bob as much as circumstances permit please uh share where you're uh coming from career-wise and uh, obviously your interest in what we're about to discuss should be self-evident yeah, well, thanks, Joseph, for uh, the kind introduction. Uh, certainly have enjoyed listening to you and Dr. Gottfried uh, over the past few years. Um, my uh, medical expertise is uh, in the laboratory space. Um, I'm currently finishing up my training uh, at a very prestigious uh, medical center somewhere in the southeastern United States, but uh, we'll be taking a job uh, in a different part of the southeastern United States. Uh, in just a little bit over a year's time. Um, so uh, coming at it uh, from sort of a late trainee kind of perspective, uh, you know, completed medical school, finished residency, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I have, you know, some thoughts about, you know, the subject that we're going to discuss tonight, but uh, obviously deferred to you know senior colleagues who've been in this for years. But as somebody who's currently going through training, I'm experiencing uh, these changes sort of on the ground in a way that uh, people who may have been in the field for a number of years uh, feel less acutely. So I'm excited to, uh, to be here tonight with you and the audience. It's always interesting to hear about the medical field from a medical doctor. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it, this is a, an industry that is of perpetual relevance for reasons that I don't even need to begin to get into. Uh, so on that note, we're going to be discussing uh, five aspects of it, as have uh, and these aspects have been reported on in the press, uh, at least fairly recently. One of them is from Healthcare Dive, and uh, the headline of the article is Medicare insolvency still expected by 2026, unchanged by COVID-19, trustees say. Reading from the brief uh, of the article, while the coronavirus pandemic has significantly affected short-term spending in Medicare, it shouldn't have a large impact on the financial status of the program's trust funds after 2024, according to the Medicare Board of Trustees annual report to Congress. The new forecast released Tuesday, and this article was uh, published on September the 1st, 2021, in case I didn't mention that before, is somewhat of a bright spot for the otherwise grim financial prospects of the program. As some experts predicted, COVID-19 would result in the Hospital Insurance Trust Fund, which finances Medicare Part A, running out of money faster than earlier expected. However, the trustees, who include HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra and CMS Administrator Takeda brooks Lashur, still expect the fund to run dry by 2026, the same estimate as 2018, 2019, and 2020's reports due to policy and action from Washington. Spending in Medicare is expected to balloon from 4% of the country's gross domestic product to 6.2% by 2045, after which costs are expected to rise more slowly, 
before leveling off at around 6.5% of the GDP, according to the report. Now, Dr. Bob, obviously there's a, a, there are a hell of a lot of different directions one could take this in, but uh, looking at the situation on the whole, uh, I mean, you could just say it's bad, but that's overly simplistic. Uh, what would it look, like, it look like to you as a healthcare practitioner, Medicare becoming insolvent uh, in, in three years' time? I was about to say uh, four years' time, and now it's three years. Yeah. Um, so I think it's quite astounding that you know, that 4% number is that this is just one federal program that is taking 4% of our GDP and is expected to go to 6.5% uh, thereafter. Um, Medicare, as you may know, is primarily for those, uh, I believe, over the age of 65, though I know that there's been some discussion in terms of raising that age or lowering that age, uh, depending on how one does the math. Um, so our senior citizens uh, depend upon uh, Medicare um, for their uh, coverage uh, for health insurance and health procedures. Um, as you may know, the majority of uh, healthcare spending um, that uh, occurs in this country is for that uh, elderly uh, age population. And uh, that only spikes uh, to I believe within the last six months of life, there's like a very large percentage of total health care over the course of somebody's life that is actually spent just in those last six months. Um, so I think this is just another failure uh, of the great, uh, you know, whether you, the, the great society from the 60s or going all the way back to the 30s with what FDR did uh, with the New Deal Um that uh, is, is coming to a head pretty soon. Um, just like the federal shutdowns uh, that you see whenever there's a fight over the budget, it doesn't mean everything is going to cease operation all at once. Um, but once we hit that threshold, uh, it's certainly going to be changing the way that we do things. And uh, I think that uh, it is going to be a rude awakening for a number of Americans when all of a sudden their services start getting cut back. Well, if there's one thing people don't like, it's government services being cut, particularly services that they depend on. Now, uh, what do you think would be the most immediate impact upon the medical industry of Medicare becoming insolvent uh, in such a short period? Uh, is there one thing that stands out to you or is it too complicated to reduce it to that point? Uh, anything to say here? Yeah, I think that uh, maybe not so much what will get cut back at first, but maybe what won't get cut back at first. Um, so Medicare is in a number of different parts. I believe it's parts A through D now. The Bush administration uh, added part D, which is prescription drug coverage um, in uh, the mid 2000s, I believe. Uh, and so mm -hmm. that uh, gives seniors a discount on uh, uh, drugs uh, that they go and buy from their pharmacist. Uh, and then part B is physician services. Um, so from what I have been gathering the news in this article speaks to this, uh, that uh, physician services uh, and the ability for physicians to, uh, you know, uh, put in their CPT codes and to bill for services is not going to go away. Neither is part D. So I think those two things will stay in place. Um, but it's the other things uh, that are um, covered under Medicare that I think uh, will start to see some cutbacks. 
I think Medicare cutbacks would be politically perilous. I'm sure they would be for any party mm -hmm. that would seek to uh, to promote this sort of thing, which leads me to believe that neither party will do so. As a matter of fact, Trump has drawn a line in the sand in his uh, latest presidential campaign uh, that there should not be these cuts. And uh, one Republican, Rick Scott, who uh, interestingly enough represents my home state of Florida, was in favor of these cuts, but now he's walked that back. It's just too unpopular. The question is, will the federal government somehow try to keep funding Medicare even after it isn't solved, or will they do uh, cuts? There would surely be radical cuts, not just uh, you know uh, tapering around the edges in order to make the program solvent again. Uh, nobody can say for sure what will happen, but my inclination, considering the federal government has not had a proper budget in how many years now, I can't even recall. They just do continuing resolutions. Uh, and my inclination is to believe that uh, they will just try to fund Medicare through whichever sort of, uh, <laughs> whichever way they can. Uh, and obviously that's not a long-term solution, but uh, one might say that America is not in the sort of position where it has uh, an ultra long-term future given its financial situation. Yeah, one other thing to note um, is that uh, Medicare, so part A, uh, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, that's like inpatient hospital services. Um, so anytime somebody gets admitted to the hospital or shows up at the hospital, that's going to be funded through Part A of the program. But another thing that Medicare funds um, that I think you should keep an eye on, as as should your listeners, is uh, slots for training programs. So residencies and fellowships um, are also funded through Medicare, um, and that's tied up with you know the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services as well as uh, American College of Graduate Medical Education. So they set a certain number of slots each year. Uh, one of the issues that we've had, uh, and I speak to this from sort of the education and training perspective, is that we've actually expanded the number of slots, both in MD schools as well as DO schools uh, around the United States uh, for people to actually enter the medical profession. However, uh, that doesn't actually mean a whole lot if you're not actually expanding um, the uh, slots for training programs for after people finish uh, uh, medical school. So the way that uh, medical education and training in this country works right now is that you have to go to college, uh, take a certain number of um, pre-medicine requirements that are, uh, it depends from school to school, but there's uh, basic requirements, things like two semesters of biology, two semesters of organic chemistry with lab, two semesters of general chemistry. Um, I believe there's two semesters of physics as well and a certain number of humanities and social sciences uh, too that are required. After somebody completes those courses, they will then uh, be able to apply to medical school. Um, most medical schools, and I think all of them so far, but who knows with uh, the way things are going with DEI, um, if uh, the MCAT will still be required for every medical school, but uh, the MCAT is typically taken at least for allopathic medical schools, and there's a corresponding test for uh, osteopathic medical schools. Um, and then somebody is admitted into medical school, which is uh, four years in length. Um, the first two years traditionally have been classroom-based education on basic sciences, things such as anatomy and physiology, embryology, biochemistry, um, microbiology, uh, the sort of fundamental uh, life sciences, uh, 
sort of beyond what a college, you know, level um, uh, training in those courses would be and, you know, a little bit higher level than that. And then after the first two years, uh, step one of the United States medical licensing exam uh, is then taken. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, medical students will then proceed into the second half of their medical education where they will uh, engage in clinical clerkships. Uh, so those will be rotations to the various services in the hospital, whether that be surgery or internal medicine, OBGYN, radiology, uh, dermatology, uh, psychiatry, neurology, you know, so on and so forth, pediatrics. Um, and then at the end of that uh, second two-year period, um, medical students will interview during their final year um, for uh, residency spots. Um, and uh, that will be at primarily academic medical centers. Some community programs will have those. But what is important about this is that if somebody graduates with an MD, but they then do not go on to get training, all they are is a general practitioner at this point. Um, so you can go on and you can pass all of the medical licensing exams, but training or residency um, is how somebody gets uh, specialized within a field. So you would go and do a general surgery residency if you wanna be a general surgeon, if you wanna be a radiologist, you do radiology residency, same with internal medicine and so on and so forth. Um, so if you don't have an increase in the number of residency spots, then even if the number of spots for uh, medical students is increased around the country, you're not actually training any more doctors. You know, one very, very interesting thing that's happened to healthcare in America over, I mean, it's been going on now for about 20 years and change, but it's really sped up over the last 10 years. I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, it's the proliferation of doctors and nursing practice, and nowadays even doctors in medical science, which is a doctor for someone who's a physician assistant. And these people, it seems to me, are eating up a lot of the turf that was traditionally uh, stood on by general practitioners. So I'm wondering how this is impacting uh, the medical industry on the whole. Uh, I, I, I know for a fact that some of you can speak of at much greater length than yes. I can. What's your take on it? Yeah, so you bring up a great point. So one of the ways that uh, especially rural areas as well as uh, sort of deep urban areas are trying to cope with the shortage of physicians is to uh, employ what are called mid-level providers. So historically, these were master's level um, uh, providers, uh, the two most common being uh, nurse practitioners on the one hand and then physician assistants, now rebranded physician associates. Um, in recent years. Uh, there are various levels of training uh, that are involved here, uh, various uh, quality uh, of training, depending on the institutions that people come from. Say if somebody goes to be a PA at like, you know, Harvard, that's probably different than, you know, a PA at like, you know, University of Phoenix or something sure. like that. Uh, so uh, there's definitely some variable quality uh, physician assistants, um, will typically step in um, primarily in sort of the general practice areas. So things like pediatrics, internal medicine, um, but they can practice in pretty much any area of medicine. Um, now, historically, they have been practicing under physicians um, or so within the, the purview or the uh, supervision of uh, an attending, as they are called, uh, MD. Um, so they're not autonomous practitioners. Um, 
and they are trained in the medical model. I would say uh, PA education is about 75% of what you get in medical school, but there's no residency training afterwards. Somebody can go directly uh, into a medical practice and start working under a physician. Uh, nurse practitioners have a different model. Uh, these are typically um, RNs, uh, so registered nurses who then go on uh, to now what is a doctoral level program, uh, doctorate of nurse practitioner, um, where they uh, are then trained for an extra four years uh, to essentially become something akin to a PA, but they have a little bit more autonomy and leeway uh, than PAs do. Um, and I would say that's probably for better and for worse, uh, depending on the nurse practitioner. Um, I will say this, um, they have their place in medicine, but one of the things that uh, a lot of hospitals uh, have started to do and uh, physician groups, which are no longer run by physicians, but are run by primarily private equity firms mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, so people with, uh, with um you know, MBAs who come in and they're like, all right, we don't know anything about medicine, but we're going to tell this physician group how to uh, how to run itself. Um, and uh, so they see PAs and NPs, especially in settings like the emergency department. So like in uh, our emergency rooms uh, or in urgent cares um, as a very, uh, you know, sort of juicy appearing uh, cost cutting measure. Uh, the problem is, is that we don't really have a lot of long-term outcomes data in terms of the effect of this proliferation of mid-level providers uh, upon uh, patient outcomes um, in the long run. So it remains to be seen how effective they will be at bridging the gap versus being a shiny object that looks like it will solve a problem, but actually end up creating more problems than were there in the first place. I think it's something else how, uh, you know, I mean, the cost of healthcare is ballooning. And one way of trying to you know, tamper down on that is by having uh, doctors in nursing practice and doctors in medical science doing things that a general practitioner would do. And even, and actually, I need to be careful here because uh, you, <laughs> nurse practitioners, uh, even if they're not doctors, now can for instance, an anesthesia. Uh, so yes. they really are getting into things that, you know, traditionally only an MD would have anything at all to do with. Uh, and I think this trend is going to continue because obviously they're paid quite a bit less. Uh, but uh, with their doctorates, will that change? Will they wind up getting higher pay? I think to a degree, but probably never on the scale by design of, of an MD. I'd say definitely <laughs> never on that scale. Uh, I think that's the primary uh, factor here. It's economics. And uh, there are uh, nurse practitioners who do an outstanding job taking physician's assistance. As a matter of fact, uh, my provider is a nurse practitioner. She is out of this world excellent, uh, better than quite a few MDs, uh, <laughs> to say the least. But uh, then you have other uh, people who are physician assistants or nurse practitioners, and they're put into a situation that uh, legally they're able to do X, Y, or Z in, but uh, perhaps they don't have the level of training. Uh, I don't want to say sophistication. That might sound a bit nasty uh, that, that an MD would have, but I think this will continue because of, of, of cost-cutting measures. And I think the introduction of doctors for nurse practitioners, 
and for a physician's assistants or associates. To me, physician associates sounds lower level than physician assistant, but whatever. Uh, but I think that the introduction <laughs> of, of doctors for these these uh, career groups, it's it's done because it's normalizing these people as uh, something akin to a doctor of medicine, as an MD. And I think the motivation for this is purely financial. Uh, I don't think there's really anything else to say about it. Uh, but of course, I could be very wrong. Anything to say, Dr. Bob? Yeah, I, I'll just, I had conversations a couple of years ago with a colleague of mine who's an internist, and he works at an academic medical center. One of the things that he said is that uh, the quality of what he is seeing in the nurse practitioner program uh, at this particular academic medical center is not great. Uh, what he says in terms of people who, and he has over 30 years in practice and has been, you know, training both physicians and nurse practitioners, you know, in academic setting for multiple decades now. Um, but what he says is the nurse practitioners and the PAs who are typically very quality uh, healthcare providers uh, who do a very good job are typically people who probably could have gone to medical school uh, if they had wanted to, but life circumstances, whether that be family or finances or whatever it might be, somebody who comes out of the military who might be a little bit older, um, it just wasn't feasible for them to go to medical school. And so they end up going the mid-level provider route and they end up turning out okay. The problem is, is that you have a lot of people who might be qualified to be a nurse, um, but they don't have the mindset um, of what it takes to be a physician. And this is borne out in MCAT scores. Uh, this is borne out, you know, in GPA and in other, uh, uh, you know, uh, objective measures that uh, are clearly lower than physicians. So that's one of the problems I think that we see with this is that there is variability. Now, speaking to the cost uh, aspect real quick, um, the average internist in this country makes somewhere between $250,000 and $350,000 a year. Probably the later they get in their career, the more that approaches sort of the $300,000 to $350,000 sort of range. Three fifty dollars would probably be on the sort of extremely high end. Um, whereas a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner who's working in primary care, um, you know, just sort of general internal medicine, whether it be an outpatient setting or an inpatient setting. The PA is probably making somewhere between 100 to 120,000 and the NP may be making up to somewhere between 125 and 150 a year. Those would be sort of ballpark numbers. So that sort of puts, you know, maybe some more concrete um, numbers on, you know, what an MBA or private equity might be looking at. Uh, when they're making these decisions and staffing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, cash is king. <laughs> Needless to say, I, I think that this is a really interesting uh, situation that will continue to develop. And one last word on it. Here in Florida, uh, a law was recently passed to uh, which allows uh, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants to uh, to to operate independently. I mean, they still have to be licensed, obviously, but they no longer have to be under the purview of a doctor of medicine. And uh, obviously, this this is quite popular because people do want to receive care at the lowest cost possible. And uh, it, it's opened up quite a few doors. Uh, I see the positives of it, though obviously there are some negatives. And it's just one of those things that we'll have to wait and see how they go. Uh, and the last question I have for you on this, Dr. Bob, before we get to the next item, 
Uh, do doctors of medicine feel uh, intimidated, professionally speaking, by the rise of, uh, of nurse practitioners and uh, physician assistants, or are they not really affected by it? What's the climate like? I think it really depends on the physician. And what I would say is, is while there might be some concern in this idea of mid-level providers, I think most physicians actually welcome uh, mid-level providers coming into the field uh, simply because of um, how many more hours physicians are having to work, um, particularly as the population ages and uh, the burden of disease in the population as a whole uh, expands. Uh, that puts more stress and more strain on what is essentially an almost fixed number of physicians um, in this country. So I would say that uh, while it's a concern, it's probably lower down on the list. I would say bigger concerns would have to do uh, with things like physician burnout, um, the role of the physician in the healthcare organization, um, long ago, uh, most physicians were not employees. Most physicians were partners in the practice or owners in the hospital Absolutely. that they worked in. Um, that's really changed in recent years, especially in my space in the laboratory area. Um, we had somebody from uh, Alabama come and speak uh, last year uh, in our department, and he had mentioned that uh, I think the last privately owned or physician-owned lab in the state of Alabama was finally uh, bought up by a larger group. And so now um, every person who works in the laboratory medicine space in uh, Alabama is now an employee of some form or another uh, in that state. Uh, there might be some physician-owned groups that are still there, um, on a smaller scale, but in terms of like large labs, uh, it's all employee based now. Um, and so you're seeing this uh, both in the laboratory space that I deal with, as well as the more clinical space um, that my more clinically based colleagues would be dealing with, um, that uh, it's something like almost three fourths of physicians now are employees. And so you have less say over how your organization runs and uh, that puts, uh, another sort of uh, brick or, you know, barrier between you and your patient, uh, because now you're having to worry about what management is thinking about your prescribing habits and how you are actually practicing medicine. Um, everything has just gotten more complicated, and especially since 2009, and we can maybe get into this later with the the High Tech Act and the uh, the adoption of electronic medical record systems, um, physicians are just they're being you know asked to do more and more things with less and less control, and so I would think that is probably the bigger issue um, over and against uh, the issue of mid level providers coming into the space. And now for the next item, this one is from the Association of American Medical Colleges. It was published on December the 17th, 2017, and the article is titled More Women Than Men Enrolled in U.S. Medical Schools in 2017. For the first time, the number of women enrolling in U.S. medical schools has exceeded the number of men, according to new data released today by the AAMC. Females represented 50.7% of the 21,338 matriculates, new enrollees, in 2017, compared with 49.8% in 2016. 
female matriculants increased by 3.2% this year, while male matriculants declined by 0.3%. Since 2015, the number of female matriculants has grown by 9.6%, while the number of male matriculants has declined by 2.3%. Overall, the number of matriculants in U.S. medical schools rose by 1.5% this year, and total enrollment stands at 89,904 students. Now, uh, this is interesting because obviously some time has passed since 2017, but it's definitely in the arena of being fairly recent, particularly since this is from late 2017. Uh, I, I think that this data, uh, it's fascinating to look at. I am certain that now women are more than 50.7% in matriculates and uh, men are, uh, you know, uh, in decline, although who knows how they would categorize people on the basis of gender nowadays. But I, I, I think that this is, is really something, and it is certainly changing the face of, uh, of, of, of um, I was going to say, of the medical field, but specifically uh, of uh, the career path of a doctor of medicine. Uh, so, Dr. Bob, anything to say about this uh, really uh, important alteration? Yeah, I think yeah, this is an underappreciated uh, issue and is, uh, as you can probably guess, highly controversial uh, oh. to speak about. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I sort of laugh as you and I were talking about beforehand, uh, issues of cancellation and such. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll try to be just as objective as I can in this regard. Um, so women nowadays, I believe, make up just a little bit over a third of uh, all physicians in the United States and are a growing majority of uh, medical students. So that 50.1% to me actually seems a little low uh, in 2017. You know, 20, it's probably appropriate for 2017, but in 2023, I think that number is probably even higher. Mm -hmm. um, I know that uh, the particular academic medical center that I'm at, it's almost 60 to 40, maybe even more than 60, 40. Um, and this is going to have uh, long-term implications uh, on the medical profession for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, uh, you know, as Jordan Peterson has talked about a lot, and regardless of what you think about Jordan Peterson one way or the other on the many issues that he addresses, one of the issues that he has talked about is uh, differences in male and female interest, um, not only uh, in discriminating the type of fields that they go into, but even within fields, uh, the kind of subfields that they'll enter. So uh, female physicians, um, while yes, you do have your female surgeons and you know your female uh, you know, emergency medicine docs and you know people who are doing you know the sort of overnight grueling, you know, sort of long hour specialties, um, they're more likely to choose family-friendly specialties such as family practice, pediatrics, general internal medicine, um, where yes, you'll sacrifice you know three years of training uh, at, or three years of life to go do training, which is tough for everybody. Uh, but then when you get out, uh, you have the option of going and working in a small community hospital type of setting where you can eventually maybe move to flex time uh, where you can uh, spend more time with your kids. And I'm all for uh, women spending time with their kids. But uh, as Thomas Sowell says, there are no solutions to a problem. There's only trade-offs. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is the trade-off that we're going to get with more female physicians. 
Um, I think this is overall uh, in line with uh, the general trend of men sort of retreating from academia to begin with. Um, there's still a certain kind of man uh, that will enter uh, the profession. Uh, orthopedics, for instance, is uh, still a highly uh, male-dominated profession. You know, a lot of former athletes or guys who have that sort of, you know, left brain, you know, object oriented as opposed to a person oriented mindset where, you know, a lot of people described orthopedics as like carpentry, um, very similar kind of skill set and mindset needed for that. Um, and also it is one of the more highly compensated fields uh, within medicine. Surgical specialties tend to be more highly compensated than uh, medical specialties or medicine based specialties. Uh, in uh, in medicine. And so you're still going to have a certain type of man and a certain number of men uh, go for those kind of uh, specialties. But uh, especially in the primary care setting, as we're, as we've mentioned, um, having the, the sort of number crunch in terms of physicians to patient population ratio, um, Having uh, females who typically do not work as many years, they don't work as many hours. Uh, and this is obviously a general trend. This is not speaking to every individual situation, but um, for making, you know, population-based decisions, you know, looking at our first story with Medicare and if Medicare is going to be spending um, its hard-earned taxpayer dollars upon, you know, medical residency positions, um, I think that society and uh, the voter and the taxpayer in particular should have uh, a greater say on this. Is it something to celebrate that men seem to be falling behind or that women uh, seem to be uh, gaining a, an advantage and uh, pulling ahead of men uh, when it comes to medical education? Um, I think that uh, it remains to be seen whether this is a positive, a negative, or otherwise, you know, uh, neutral development. Um, I, I will just say that I'm uh, quite concerned, um, not so much with women entering the field, but uh, what seems to be the ongoing sort of marginalization of men um, in medicine and the lack of uh, incentives to recruit men and to uh, encourage men uh, to enter the medical profession. I think it's something and something that stands out to me here is a lot of the women who are interested in becoming MDs, considering the likely, not absolutely, but the likely uh, career path they will take within medicine, they might be better served by becoming a doctor of nursing practice or a doctor of medical science uh, or just becoming an MP or uh, a PA uh, I, I, because if they want to do more, uh, you know, how does one put this? Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out, the. I know what I want to say, it's not a bad thing, but they want to do something that's more uh, humanitarian, although any form of being a medical doctor is humanitarian yeah. work, but they want to do something that is more uh, nurturing, that's the way to put it. Yes. Uh, uh, then I think that certainly they would get what they're looking for out of being a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, uh, going into to, 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 to becoming, taking the immense amount of time and money and effort it requires to become a doctor of medicine to do basically what a PA or an MP does, which it sounds like to me is what most female doctors are interested in, not all, but most. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Well, you're sort of, you know, stepping around the elephant in the room, which is the issue of uh, pay and uh, prestige. 
Oh, uh, particularly as you have seen, and this starts long before medical training or medical education. It starts in, you know, secondary school. It starts in the universities where women are told that, you know, you need to be, you're as good as a man. Therefore, you need to have the same life trajectory as a man because, you know, I think as uh, Aaron Clary has said, you know, you go girl, um, which, you know, I'm all for, you know, if a woman wants to enter the medical profession, you know, by all means, um, you know, I don't believe there should be any sort of legal discrimination in that regard. Nobody's suggesting that. Um, but I think that we need to start being more honest. You know, this is where I come back to Jordan Peterson again uh, with, you know, what do you want to get out of life? That's the question that I think more people need to ask themselves generally, but especially women. I cannot tell you the number of, you know, female colleagues I've had discussions with sort of off the record who have thought about quitting medicine, who have regretted going into medicine, um, who uh, they, as a, a friend of mine outside the medical profession has stated, you know, women who also want a family and who also want a marriage, um, who they hit a bullseye, but they hit a bullseye on the wrong target. Um, uh-huh. And uh, yeah, a, a crazy statistic that I heard uh, recently, there's a podcast I listened to called Sensible Medicine, uh, Vinay Prasad and Marty McCary and uh, you know, Zubin Damania, people like that who have uh, some more well-known physicians in the social media space. They had a I think it was Dr. McCary and uh, Dr. Prasad were talking on one of their recent episodes, and they said within seven years of completing training, 30% of female physicians will leave the medical profession altogether. And it's like, yeah. And so you start asking, you know, once again, that societal investment, you know, how do we mitigate this? Um, On the one hand, uh, is there things that we can be doing in training? Is there things we can be doing uh, to better accommodate our female colleagues Uh, on the one hand? And on the other hand, there's the societal question that needs to be asked. um, Is it worth it? Given these statistics, are we allowed to even ask the sort of verboten question of whether this should be encouraged or not? Um, You know, that's something that, uh, you know, if you were to even dare uh, bring up and especially an academic medical center, um, you would be tarred and feathered and run out of the field, called in front of the dean's office. Um, But uh, these numbers are staggering. Um, And uh, so that's why I take sort of a very grim picture on this and uh, think that we're going to go through uh, some very difficult times as a nation uh, in the healthcare sector uh, as we figure these issues out uh, long term. Yeah, it's, it's really sad, obviously, that a woman would think she has to compete with a man, basically, so she should have to go through extensive training that she doesn't need and that she doesn't really want, ultimately. Uh, but a, a lot of people do make poor decisions with their lives, to say the least. And uh, this is just one of those uh, situations. Uh, I I really do think it'll be interesting to see how increased female participation in uh, the medical field, particularly among doctors of medicine, uh, relates to healthcare going forward, will be interesting. Uh, I'm going to say something that some might find controversial, but it's based upon 
quite a bit of uh, observation. I do think that women make much better nurses than men do, generally speaking. I can't see how that's not the case. Uh, I'm not going to say that men make better doctors than women because there are many different kinds of doctors. And, you know, for instance, a pediatrician, I cannot imagine that a guy on average would do as good as a woman would, although obviously there are some men who would be outstanding at this and some women who wouldn't be. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just think that there are definitely certain career uh, fields and paths within fields that men uh, or women relate to more than the other. And it's natural that people should do what they're good at and what they feel fulfilled by instead of trying to, you know, fit into some mold of I have to do this because I have to prove myself X, Y, Z, so on and so forth. Yeah, I totally agree. And I come back to that question I mentioned earlier of like, that I always talk to medical students whenever they come rotate with me is, well, what do you want to get out of life? You know, do you want to be one of those people who works to live, um, you know, or do you want to be somebody who is that real go-getter who lives to work? Um, everybody's going to have um, some place and along that, you know, sort of spectrum. And it's not exactly, a, you know, a hard and fast dichotomy, um, but everybody's going to have a place along that spectrum that they fall. And uh, you really have to figure these questions out, um, you know, sooner rather than later, uh, because medical school is also not getting any cheaper. Um, <laughs> and uh, the debt situation that uh, medical students are increasingly being put under um, are oftentimes informing the kinds of specialties that they choose, um, which is another uh, sort of, you know, macro societal issue that we're uh, going to have to figure out. It's a big problem if you're operating on someone and you're only there because, you know, this is what you think you can make the most money off of as opposed to practicing a foreign medicine that you're actually good at and that you feel uh, a sense of achievement from uh, participating in. Now, one thing I, I before we move on to the next item, one thing I find intriguing is that and I have heard about this a lot of female physicians try to find a work-life balance, which is pretty funny if you're a physician, but whatever, uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, having uh, uh, pursuing romantic relationships uh, or having a family, uh, both probably, uh, and then, of course, doing their work. And, you know, I, I'm just wondering, you know, the, 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 these gals are obviously very intelligent to have got to where they are, but if they don't realize that there's not going to be a real balance here, I mean, you know, uh, how much more obvious could it possibly be given the work that they're doing? Men who do their kind of jo job uh, have big problems with burnout. Uh, they often don't see their children very much. Uh, mm -hmm. The kids, in many cases, are raised by nannies if the mother works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so for a lot of women to say, well, why can't I hold down a relationship? Why can't I find a man? Why can't I find a guy who wants to have kids? Uh, it, it's just, it's just. I mean, it's absolutely bizarre that someone who's that educated and that experienced in life as you'd have to be to be a medical doctor would then be surprised at, at their situation. I mean, it's, it, this is something that, uh, as the saying goes from, I think, those old progressive commercials, even a caveman could see. Yes. So you're hitting on a, a big issue where there's a number of subpoints. Um, one of which I think often gets lost is that most young people who are looking at entering the medical profession, they're making these decisions when they're 18 to 22 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, while both men and women are going through a lot of life changes at that time, uh, women in particular, you know, if you're pre-med and you're 20, 21 years old and you've planned out this life trajectory, 
you know, at the earliest, you're getting out of training at 28 or 29, you know, years of age. Um, you know, that's that's really, really the earliest in, in specialties that require the least amount of, uh, the least number of years of training. And so I think uh, most of us don't see very far down the field anyways and have a hard time of planning out, well, what's my life going to look like two years from now, five years from now, 20 years from now? Um, you know, let alone, you know, 30 to 50 years from now. And so uh, I think there's a lot of naivety um, on the part of both men and women as to what it's going to take. The issue is uh, men, uh, at the very least, because of the way that our biology works, um, you can have a family later in life. Uh, my father-in-law is a physician and he did not get married until he was 35 years old and was able to have you know, not only a successful marriage, but also multiple children. Um, his female colleagues who do the same, not so much. Um, there's all sorts of articles popping up on there of, uh, you know, egg freezing services for women in high powered professions, whether that be medicine or law or whatever it might be, um, who spend years in school and then training and practice who, uh, all of a sudden they come to uh, the point where it gets harder to have children. And even if it's theoretically possible to have children in your 30s as a woman, if you haven't already started having children in your 20s, it gets to be more difficult. And there's all sorts of issues for women who do start families and training. They're out for you know weeks and months at a time. I know when my first uh, child was born, um, I was out for like three days. <laughs> and then was back at the office. Uh, and two of those days were weekend days. Um, and I was right back at work because my wife could stay home uh, with our newborn child. You know, we've made the decision for her that she's going to stay home and we're going to homeschool and all of that sort of good stuff. But uh, for my female colleagues, you know, I've seen this, you know, up close and personal where it's like, how are you doing this? Like you're taking three months, you know, on like, you know, research or whatever it might be to, um, you know, be able to have a child. And uh, oftentimes women in medicine are married to men who are either doctors themselves or engineers or attorneys or something like that. And men who have careers, there's the issue of, you know, hypergamy as it's been brought up in the old manosphere circles as far as you know, is a female physician really going to want to date a guy who is an HVAC technician? Um, he doesn't have the college degree. He doesn't have the prestige behind him. Some women will, you know, and there are those women who will. I know one female uh, physician colleague of mine who married a farmer and they're moving to a small Midwestern town and he's going to stay at home with the kids and farm and she's going to work at, uh, you know, the practice in town. And they seem to have been able to make it work. But that's the exception. Absolutely. That's not the rule uh, to, uh, 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 to the situation. So, yeah, um, it's, it's very challenging even as a man to have a, a family in medicine. But uh, there's a whole other set of problems that all respect to my female colleagues who are able to manage it. But many of them just simply are not. Uh, the divorce numbers among physicians are oh, not yeah. great to begin with, but uh, uh -huh. it's very difficult, uh, especially among female physicians. And last thing before we move on to the next item, as I understand it, uh, male uh, physicians, 
report having a lot of women who are interested in them. Of course, a lot of these women are interested in the male physicians because they see dollar signs, not for what could be called the right reasons, but there still is the interest. But a lot of female physicians report that a lot of guys are not interested in dating them once they discover what uh, you know the, these gals do. Uh, is this a stereotype, Dr. Bob? Is there any truth to this? What's your take on this, uh, this idea before we move along? I think there's some kernel of truth to the stereotype. Um, you know, obviously stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. Uh, they're not universally true by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and every individual circumstance and situation has to be taken uh, within that individual circumstance and situation's context. Um, but yes, um, you know, when I was Looking for women has certainly, you know, helped in the dating market uh, uh, before I met uh, before I met my wife. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, at least being able to go on dates and stuff, when women see that you're a physician, they're thinking, you know, dollar signs, but not just the dollar signs. The fact that you must be a smart guy to be able to do this. You must be hardworking, motivated. Uh, the money is really a surrogate for other personality traits that I think all women are looking for uh, in men in terms of masculinity. Um, for women, it's not so much that men don't want to date them. The issue becomes marriage. It becomes the long-term aspect. How are we going to make a family situation work? You know, there's a lot of sleazebag guys out there uh, to begin with who are just looking for one thing. But when you start to get into the more serious realm of, you know, sort of life partnership and life companionship and um, finding somebody to do life together with long-term in the context of marriage, um, even though marriage seems to be going by the wayside. I think a lot of men who date female physicians, and this is one of the reasons I had sort of a soft rule. It wasn't a hard and fast rule, but a soft rule that I was not going to date, you know, female colleagues of mine, um, simply because, nothing against any one individually. And if the right situation had come along, then I would have been open to it, but just playing the numbers and, you know, what I wanted out of life, I just knew that would be very, very difficult. Um, most of the double doctor couples that I know typically only have one or two kids. Kid is, you know, shipped off to daycare pretty early. Um, I've heard stories of kids crying as their mom is leaving. them to go to work as they're being dropped off at daycare. And it's just, you know, just a gut-wrenching thing. You know, these are real um, people with real, um, you know, life circumstances. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's challenging. And so it's not so much, you know, men don't want to date, quote unquote, whatever you mean by date women who are in medicine. I think it really becomes an issue when you start looking down the road at more long-term type relationships. And now for the next item published uh, uh, on the Fox News website on the 25th of July of last year, University of Michigan medical students walk out of pro-life speaker's keynote address at White Coat Ceremony. Video shows dozens of students and parents exiting auditorium as Dr. Kirsten, uh, Kristen Collier approached 
podium and just reading a bit from the article. Now, dozens of incoming University of Michigan medical school students walked out of a pro-life keynote speaker's address after a previous petition to get the speaker removed failed. Shortly after Dr. Kristen Collier, a pro-life assistant professor of medicine at UMMS, took the stage on Sunday to address the new students at their white coat ceremony, several dozen people got up from their seats and headed for the auditorium doors video of the ceremony showed. Uh, a video of the walkout on Twitter quickly amassed over 200,000 likes. This is interesting because as anyone who knows me knows, I am no friend of the so-called pro-life movement. I put the Rockefeller in Rockefeller Republican when it comes to social <laughs> issues. Uh, but uh, as a matter of fact, I think at this point, I'm sort of like a close to a sworn enemy of the pro-life movement. But uh, I, uh, I, I, this does uh, definitely... Uh, uh, it is concerning that someone's beliefs would engender this kind of response in what should be a very apolitical environment where something like abortion has no place whatsoever. It's, it's kind of strange uh, because I see this as the politicization of what should be a fundamentally apolitical matter, which is a white coat ceremony. Uh, and that to me is, is disconcerting that people reacted to her in this way. And I'm definitely not in favor of, of, of the walkout. I think it says something really, uh, really unfortunate about where the mindset of a lot of people who are going to be obviously caring for others in the future uh, might be it, it, where that mindset is. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's really something else. I know Dr. Bob has different views than I do on the abortion issue. He is definitely not a Rockefeller Republican. Uh, Dr. Bob, anything to say about this uh, matter? Well, Joseph, this is what I've always respected about our um, you know friendship. You know, as we've uh, you know exchanged emails over the years, is even when we have differences of opinion uh, on a particular uh, issue. I think there's a little bit more common ground uh, than might seem at first. Um, you know, I certainly understand, uh, even though I would disagree, um, you know, sort of in teleological terms with why you might be pro-choice. Um, and I uh, can see it from uh, your point of view. Uh, the issue, I think, though, that would concern both of us. Oh, and by the way, I have a lot of criticisms for the pro-life industry as well as somebody who is pro-life. Uh, I think there's a lot of money in the pro-life industry, uh, and there's a lot of people who are perpetuating the status quo who, you know, they talk a big game when it comes to, um, you know, the outlawing of uh, infanticide in the country. Uh, but who uh, are getting a lot of money, uh, who uh, are uh, propping up politicians who talk a big game, who don't actually want to do anything about this. Um, and so regardless of whether you come down on it, there's a lot of hypocrisy and there's a lot of problems in the pro-life industry, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a separate issue from somebody who has personal convictions, uh, especially um, from religious worldview, uh, and I will say in the majority and historic majority in this nation, that is the Christian worldview, um, uh, whether Protestant or Roman Catholic, even though I will say, even as an evangelical, that the Roman Catholics beat us to this issue uh, in the political sphere. And so there's a lot of uh, pro-life Roman Catholics, uh, you know, from the 60s, 70s, and 80s who really um, did, uh, you know, the arm share or the lion's share of, uh, you know, the work in this issue. Um, but 
But uh, that being said, uh, I think this is a broader issue. It's not just that she's pro-life. Uh, this comes to issues that you talk about with other guests that goes beyond medicine, um, that's affecting academia, that's affecting the media, that's affecting popular culture. Um, and that is very much the woke uh, movement and the woke ideology, DEI, whatever you want to call it, that has come in. Um, I do not see this as primarily a political uh, struggle or political issue, but uh, there is almost a sort of heretical version of evangelical Protestantism that has caught on. And I say this as an evangelical Protestant um, in academia where uh, Jesus and the Bible and God have been jettisoned and, and we've now inserted things like social justice and anti-racism and diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's, you know, all the structural elements of what you would see in the old time Christian religion that have been replaced by a different substance. And uh, so um, I actually had a conversation about this uh, with a a uh, friend of mine who's not in medicine, and uh, he's kind of an extreme right-wing guy. Uh, he and I butt heads a little bit uh, on certain things, um, but uh, he was like, I actually applaud them as a, you know, right-winger for walking out because they're staying true to their religious convictions. And uh, he's like, I know that, uh, you know, they are my enemy and they're, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, announcing as such. Um, all, you know, kidding aside with that conversation, um, uh, I think this is a bigger issue than just disagreeing on one particular, um, you know, policy decision. But this is, you know, really being now construed, I think, in religious terms. And this is catching on in the universities. It's catching on in the government schools um, where people are being taught, uh, you know, they're not being uh, educated. They're not being uh, taught how to think. They're being indoctrinated with a new uh, the new American religion, the new state religion of the United States, which really is the sort of DEI uh, zeitgeist uh, that's come in. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me that this is where you're seeing this go. Um, it's, uh, I think, disheartening. Um, I've seen even uh, old time liberals, uh, people who would still identify with the Democratic Party, even though they've now started to disagree with the sort of woke movement of the Democratic Party, where it's like, look, I may have disagreed with you on this issue, but you have the right to exist and you have the right to be a physician. Um, there's some very concerning signs coming out of Canada right now where Christian universities, Christian law schools, um, their graduates are no longer being recognized uh, by the National uh, Lawyers Association. And so they're essentially losing accreditation and uh, their professional licenses are in jeopardy uh, because they uh, don't agree with uh, either, you know, the abortion issue or the LGBT issue or whatever it might be. Um, and I think this is coming from medicine as well. Um, there are certain schools like Liberty University that started a medical school uh, about five to seven years ago um, that uh, I could very easily see a school like Liberty um, if we go the way of Canada losing its accreditation um, over these issues. Um, these people on the left, and I don't primarily blame the medical students, um, but um, the people uh, who've been around much longer who have been pushing this, um, they are zealots and they will not tolerate what they perceive as heresy uh, and they will root it out at all costs. And uh, 
you ask me if I'm, you know, concerned about my long-term, you know, status as a physician, um, you know, could I get sued because, you know, I sign a report uh, with somebody's biological sex uh, when that person identified as something else and all of a sudden I get dragged in front of a judge and a grand jury? Um, you betcha that uh, that's a concern that I have. Um, but we're really seeing the canary in the coal mine is in the instance of people like Dr. Collier who work in academic medicine um, is really the front line of this where um, physicians are being pushed out of academic institutions. Uh, that always comes before the private sector, um, but uh, it's it's become Orwellian uh, in uh, some sense. I, some of the views that uh, some of my, uh, you know, the medical students I interact with, it's like, I may disagree with you and that's all fine and good, but, uh, you know, don't try to take away my livelihood uh, simply because I disagree with you. Uh, and I think the only way to understand it, this is not a political difference. This is very much a religious and a worldview difference. Yeah, I, I'm a secular humanist from a Jewish perspective. And even I will say that it obviously is wokeism. Uh, it is a, a, a religion. Uh, it's a replacement religion for Christianity. And uh, it's no surprise then that its adherents have this sort of uh, profound devotion to their ideas, to their ideology, which you describe. Uh, it's not just about political differences. I have known people my whole life. I'm friends with people with whom I have very deep political differences. Uh, and uh, there's not an element of people trying to tear each other apart because of that. But when it comes to uh, what you see now with people under age 35 and wokeism, uh, it's it's really uh, frightening. I mean, I myself, I'm under 35, a millennial in my early 30s. And uh, even for me, it's scary to see this stuff. Uh, it, it's really, uh, really unfortunate. And I, in a professional situation, would like people to not focus on their politics and to focus on achieving objectives for whatever organization they work at. And uh, they would team up with others who think differently than them uh, in pursuit of a common goal. And at the end of the day, everyone hopefully make money so everybody go home happy and then they can advocate for whatever the hell they want. Uh, but uh, bringing that into the workplace, I think, is inherently corrosive and uh, it causes no shortage of problems. It hampers productivity and it results in a, not only a negative workplace, but probably a company that's almost certainly a company that's not as functional as uh, it could otherwise be. Maybe politics uh, could even destroy a company. I mean, you, you just don't know. Uh, and so it's not good to go down this very uh, pothole ridden a road with no lighting that's probably going to lead to a dead end. Uh, it, it's really just a stupid idea, but a lot of people want to do it because the wokeism for them is a religion. And that's why when I talk about wokeism, I capitalize it as if I were talking about Presbyterianism or Zoroastrianism, because uh, I do regard it as being a religious ideology. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Peter Bogosian uh, did a taxonomy of wokeism that was really brilliant. Uh, and he treats it as a religious belief system with articles of faith. And that's exactly what it is. And that does frighten me. Uh, I will say that I, I am very much in a way, uh, I'm not a child of the 90s, but in a way I'm a product of the 2000s when they had the new atheism movement, very strong secularism, which obviously characterized me. I've been a secular humanist since I was uh, a teenager, so I didn't join up with this thing as people do when they're in college or whatever on the genuine article. Uh, but uh, I did come out of this time when there was 
uh, a much more strident view of being faithless and living a ethical secular life. But what's happened, uh, what happened in the 2010s and certainly is happening in the 2020s is that uh, the left basically ditched new atheism for its own form of faith, for its own dogmas, uh, into which even Christianity can be incorporated in a rather strange sense, as you were talking about before. Uh, and uh, now it's very much the triumph of faith in the public square, but it's a it's a very destructive faith. And uh, it makes me even more, as I've always been, I'm just a secular guy by nature, but it makes me even more grounded in uh, being a secular humanist. But all the same, I, I it's depressing, really. Because what I thought would happen is that more people would just give up the whole, uh, you know, uh, faith-based religion thing. And instead, it's gone from being in the realm of the other world to being in the realm of this world. And uh, it's profoundly disappointing. And uh, it, it is really, uh, really depressing. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you talk about faith. Um, any Christian of a traditional background uh, who understands church history, you know, you've think about the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, what is the, the first word, you know, in Latin, it's, uh, you know, the credo, uh, you know, translated from, uh, you know, the Greek pistis, you know, the idea of faith, you know, it's, it's we believe, literally, is the, the first two, uh, the first word. And I'm not sure if you've seen this around any college towns that might be near where you're at, but certainly in the area where I'm at, there's this these yard signs that have popped up that say, you know, we believe on the top line. And then there's like Black Lives Matter, love uh -huh. is love, feminism is for everyone, no human being is illegal, science is real, and be kind to all. And it's like, do they not realize like what they are aping, you know, what they are borrowing from, like the idea of we believe. This is a creed, literally the word creed comes from this, a creedal uh -huh. statement. Now yeah, it's all self-contradictory. Yeah. I'm not sure... You know, we're starting to see this, I think, especially with the uh, the alphabet issue with, uh, you know, lesbians who are not looking kindly upon uh, the T part of the alphabet. Um, and this is regardless of what you believe about, you know, people's personal lives or personal business. Um, I think it's when this stuff starts getting drug into the, per um, the uh, you know, the public square. But uh, I think they it's there's such blinders of religious dogma. Um in the, uh, you know, over the eyes of uh, the people who believe this, um, that they don't even realize that they are espousing dogmatic and creedal statements when they say these things. And it's like, we believe, well, you know, how true is what you believe? Um, you know, can I challenge what you believe? You know, people will often point to people like Galileo or, you know, the old school liberals will point to these, you know, people who were uh, iconoclasts in history who went against the status quo and who went against the grain. But, you know, uh, that people are celebrated when they do that against the old religion of the society. But when you start doing that to the new religion of the society, all of a sudden, uh, some of these college campuses don't look so different from a 15th or 16th Absolutely. century star chamber. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it, it's scary. But yeah, there is uh, some deep need to believe that a lot of people have and you certainly see that manifested in wokeness uh and i don't think it's going away anytime soon i'm sorry to say now talking about wokeness, i mean this is a great segue to the next item the second to last one from the new york post 
published on the 16th of November uh, of last year. Med schools are even more woke than you think, and your care is at risk, written by Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. Just how woke is your nearest medical school? Likely very woke, yet the organization that helps oversee medical schools thinks it's not woke enough. So says the Association of American Medical Colleges, which last week released the first ever analysis of the extent to which diversity, equity, and inclusion have infected the institution's training future physicians. I've covered this trend for years, but I, even I didn't realize just how much patients should worry about the decline in standards and in time, the quality of their own care. The AAMC surveyed 101 institutions representing almost two-thirds of American medical schools tour in Canada, asking for audits of their DEI-related policies and programs. While the AAMC doesn't appear to have released a list of participating schools, my organization discovered the audit's existence in October when Ohio State University included the document prepared by its College of Medicine in response to our Freedom of Information request. The AAMC asked medical schools to answer 89 yes or no questions on whether they have specific DEI activities. The results are shown as a kind of report card. Schools that score 80% are colored green, and those that score between 61 and 80% are yellow. Institutions below the 60% threshold are red, a sign of failure. Medical schools should fare a failing grade from the AAMC, which helps determine whether they get accredited. Uh, as a former associate dean, I can attest that when the AAMC sets priorities, administrators rush to follow them. Uh, that's very striking stuff in my view, and I'm certain in your view as well, Dr. Bob. This is really uh, getting to something I was talking about before, the politicization of something that should not be uh, political at all, uh, particularly medical care. It's not a political entity. It's inherently apolitical. To make it political is to court disaster. You're literally playing with people's lives if you do this. And yet, of course, the AAMC, uh, it's, it's, it's going down that road uh, really crazy. Uh, anything to say about this? I'm sure you have a lot to say. Yeah, I mean, this is a big issue. One of the things I'd be curious uh, to hear uh, the thoughts from... Uh, your uh, senior colleague, Dr. Gottfried, in this uh -huh. regard, that I find it interesting that Ohio State and not a place like Harvard or Columbia uh, is considered the most woke, that uh, you have a state-sponsored public medical school is number one on this list and not a private school. Um, I think certainly I have seen it uh, in, you know, I've spent time around both public and private academic medical centers. Um, and I've certainly seen this uh, in uh, private medical schools, but it really seems that, you know, Ohio State's in a conservative, you know, red state. Um, and this seems to be most pronounced to me at least, um, in those public medical schools, um, where oftentimes you will have maybe a more conservative student body than you would at, say, like an Ivy League or a Stanford sure. or someplace Definitely. like that. And so that was the most striking aspect of the story to me, um, is that it's Ohio State, it's not Harvard, it's not Stanford, it's not Yale, uh, that is mm -hmm. the most woke. Yeah, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really crazy, uh, but it's not surprising because 
people with a certain mindset gravitate toward university campuses, even if they're in very conservative states, which Ohio certainly has become. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm not shocked by this, but it is something else that Ohio State is so uh, much on the DEI train, even in relation to something like, you know, uh, Harvard or Yale. Uh, It's it's something. How do you think that this uh, politicization of healthcare is going to uh, relate to the quality of healthcare provided during the uh, short-term future. I mean, the long-term future we could only very vaguely speculate about, but at least the short-term. Yeah. Well, I'll give a, a you know sort of a tangential aside. Um, I won't speak anything specifically to what's happened the past three years. Uh, everybody has lots of different opinions on this, but one thing that's really concerned me is just the complete jettisoning of evidence-based medicine. Um, uh, people will still pay lip service to evidence-based medicine, but when it comes to actually doing evidence-based medicine, whether that be pharmaceuticals or medical devices, you know, um, you know, just sort of wide ranging across the board, um, doctrine and belief seems to now, um, be, uh, superseding, uh, hard science and hard facts. Uh, and one area in particular, and I'll stick my neck out on this is, uh, the transgender, uh, movement, which I see really at the the sort of knife's edge of this whole DEI, um, you know, uh, push. Uh, obviously, you know, the race stuff is a big issue. Um, we can talk about that if you'd like. But sure. to me, the, the most important, uh, because it really does affect patients directly. Um, and I think we are doing severe harm, especially to minors uh, with uh, the, uh, the whole T aspect of LGBT um, is that where's the randomized control trial that shows long-term sustainable uh, improvements in uh, overall survival and mental health, uh, 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 mental health metrics, uh, physical health metrics, all of those sorts of things with something like transitioning. Um, and yet this is just taken as gospel Uh, in academic medical centers, we have an entire division dedicated to this uh, within my own academic medical center where there are medicine physicians, there are surgeons, pediatricians, you know, that runs the gamut of medical uh, specialties that are involved in this, where you have nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds that are being subjected to, I mean, it's just hard to, I can say lots of words, but, you know, as I'm talking right now, Joseph, like just afraid to even say some of the things that are how I would describe this for fear of, you know, being canceled. Um, it, there, the, the rainbow flag is everywhere and it's not primarily about the L uh, or the G anymore. It is about the T that is being uh, pushed. And uh, the, um, I will say in a good sense where I do see potentially the pendulum swinging back. And if there is something where they have pushed too far, it's the T aspect of this for children um, where you've heard the detransitioner stories. Jordan Peterson had an interview recently where he interviewed uh, a girl. I think her name was Chloe who was subjected to this. She had a broken family life and there was all sorts of psychosocial stuff going on. And it's like, she probably could have been better helped by a psychiatrist. Uh, and if they had just waited, she probably would have grown out of this desire as so many of them do. Um, 
but it was just pushed upon her and, you know, the doctors and the health system for the longest time just seemed like they were going to get away from mutilating her body. Um, but uh, she's finally suing them. And uh, I hope, I hope that she uh, wins her case. Um, and so if patients are dealing with that, you know, this is what I'm being subjected to. Like there's stuff, even when I was going through medical education about a decade ago, um, which seems fairly recent in my mind, um, there's stuff being taught. I have friends who are uh, younger than me who are in our medical school where I'm at right now, who just told me about the stuff that they're hearing in the classroom as it relates to, um, you know, gender spectrum and the T aspect of this. That's just, it would, it would be absolutely shocking to most of your viewers. Um, and uh, this is a real, like, just to me, a clear, this is beyond politics. This comes back to what we were talking about earlier, as you mentioned, Peter Bogosian, where there is a religious element to this woke movement. Um, because there's no, there's no good evidence for any of the, any of these treatments that we're doing. And yet, you know, insurance companies are starting to reimburse uh, you know, federal programs want to reimburse for this stuff. And it's like, where's the data? Even if you, you know, say that, you know, this should be okay morally, it's like you have principles of uh, medical ethics, you know, distributive justice, you know, should this operating room be reserved to perform a surgery like this when that's time and that's anesthesia and that's nursing that can be spent towards actual medical conditions um, that people need. Um and so uh, to me, that's really sort of like the, the, the bleeding edge of where I see it. And uh, I think this is the fight that you're going to see play out in the public square uh, in the coming months and uh, years um, as uh, really the most acute of all of the battlegrounds within, uh, you know, the various uh, struggles over DEI. And we'll get into what DEI is. I mean, obviously said the words, what it stands for, but we'll get into in the last item why it's such a, a contentious issue, put mildly, but perhaps far too charitably. But uh, there's no, I, I've been wondering why the whole trans thing has caught such steam in uh, the medical community. Uh, and I discovered it last year when, when I stumbled across how much money uh, can be earned from performing uh, uh, sex change operations, especially on minors. It's a, it, it's a gold mine, really. And uh, so it's no surprise that money is driving the woke this year. I'm not saying that, they're, that these people are not religious fanatics. They definitely are. But they are certainly incentivized to engage in their fanaticism by the economic aspect of this, which is massive. It's, it, I mean, the money, amount of money that, 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 that's made off of these surgeries and the whole transitioning process, it's not just the surgery. Uh, it, it's, it's like what you'd, it, it's the kind of money you'd expect like a neurosurgeon to make. It's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, if, but if I may, may speak one uh, quick uh, point to this, uh, Joseph. It's not just the money from the actual surgeries themselves. In the academic medical world, it's, the professorships, it's the divisions, it's the grant funding, it's all the other things that come along uh, in terms of remuneration besides just the actual cost of the procedures themselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and it, I mean, it's, it's the whole package here, uh, and it's a package full of money, but obviously it's at the expense of the uh, particularly the children getting these sex change operations. And I'm not opposed to people getting a sex change operation if they're an adult and they can pay for it. Um, 
I don't think insurance should have to cover it. I certainly don't think the government should be paying for it. Uh, it's, it seems to me that this is a very, very bizarre form of plastic surgery. Uh, and if people want to do that to themselves, they should be able to do it to themselves. I don't think it's a good, uh, I mean, I think it's something very tragic that people should be put to this point that they would feel this is necessary. But, uh, you know, I believe people should be left to their own devices to make decisions, even if they're, or perhaps especially when they're bad decisions, as long as no one else is harmed in the process. The problem is with transitioning children is that they don't have the, the they, they don't have the maturity, the wherewithal, or uh, I, 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 I think in any serious sense, the overall uh, ability to commit to changing uh, who they are on such a fundamental level. I mean, I just think that's totally nuts. I, I would say that it should be reserved for uh, 18 years of age or older, but I wouldn't even mind seeing it being reserved for 20 people, 21 years of age or older. But children, it's just, that makes no sense at all. And it's no surprise that there's no evidence to show that this is good for them. This is where uh, I'll offer uh, friendly uh, pushback from the floor where uh, this is my uh, traditional uh, uh, medical, uh, you know, traditional Western medical uh, mind, as well as my, uh, how shall I say it, uh, Christian reconstructionist uh, mind coming at, at this as well. But uh, I, I think that there is so much harm that's done from this and it goes against God's fundamental design for how he has created us. Um, that this should just not be allowed at all, um, that it doesn't provide any benefit. So once again, going back to our fundamental principles of medical ethics of non-maleficence, beneficence, distributive justice, uh, so on and so forth, um, that there's no benefit given, that there is definitely harm that is being done. The resources could be spent uh, better elsewhere. And that there's, to me, there's no justification for this. Um, and the fact that uh, we as the medical profession have not stood up against this um, just shows that, uh, and I'm not talking about the individuals who obviously have it as an establishment, haven't stood up against this. Uh, I think just shows where we're at uh, as a society. I, I think that, I think the whole sex change surgery thing period is tragic. Uh, I, and uh, I do appreciate uh, one might say the natural order of things. I'm not talking about concepts of natural law, so on and so forth. There's talking sure. about things exist in nature. Uh, and obviously, someone who's born as a certain biological sex is not meant to be a member of the opposite sex. That's uh, obvious. I mean, it goes down to the chromosomal level. Holy Moses. Uh, yes. Which is not obvious just looking at someone, but if somebody wants to really investigate a professional such as yourself, it is obvious. Now, uh, the thing of it is, is that people, I do believe in a society, should be allowed to make destructive decisions if they're not harming others, because that's what it means to be uh, autonomous, to be free. And I would think, I would encourage anyone not to go to the sex change operation route just because it's so, uh, in so many respects, ghastly. But uh, people, at the end of the day, I, I do believe they should have the freedom to destroy themselves. I think that's exactly what this is. But I do see where you're coming from. And I can certainly see from the standpoint of the Hippocratic Oath, doing no harm to others, uh, why you'd be leery of any doctor performing an operation like this, which you and I could both agree at any age is inherently harmful. Yes, indeed. And, and I think that's, you know, just sort of the caveat, and this is a conversation for another day, would be... Uh, if no one is doing harm to others, um, from my perspective, you know, coming from my worldview as well as from what I've seen in my experience, is that there's always harm done to the family, uh, to you know, the parents of children. You know, 
uh, to siblings, uh, that society in general, there is, there is harm that is done, but that's enough about this particular issue, which can have a whole episode on itself. Uh, the other aspect of DEI that I think is uh, mentioned in that article um, has to deal with the also very controversial issue as it relates to demographics and uh, how medical students are being um, admitted. Um, there's a broader lawsuit right now. I know that uh, has come before the Supreme Court that you and uh, some of your other guests might be able to speak to better on the Harvard and University of North Carolina cases of affirmative action. Um, but this is another issue that has come into medicine. And uh, I think it uh, erodes a lot of trust when we are not uh, being meritocratic in terms of uh, not only admissions, but also promotion um, and uh, the other aspects of uh, how we govern ourselves uh, as the medical profession. We are not gaining the public's trust when we uh, are not admitting uh, the most qualified uh, individuals uh, to our profession. To say the least, uh, <laughs> this is uh, affirmative action on steroids, basically. And um, we are going to get into something very interesting here about DEI in the last item, which is coming up right now, published in the National Review on the 3rd of December, 2022, uh, by Dean Robinson, an article titled, Woke Insanity Detected in Another Patient. Tulane School of Medicine. Uh, this is another, something else happening in a, in a rather conservative state. Go figure. Uh, new DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and other initiatives at the school promote not understanding the grievance in a way that undermines the practice of medicine. In my 37 years as a psychiatrist, I've worked in community mental health centers, the VA, prisons, and training hospitals. So it takes a lot for me to be surprised. But the outbreak of mass irrationality at the respected medical school where I now work and teach has done just that. It now appears that the Tulane School of Medicine has revised its mission to ensure that our faculty and students receive indoctrination that divides us into either oppressors or victims. This mindset, as unreasonable as it is inflexible, is degrading our ability to deal with health, the healthcare world as it really is. I'm from Louisiana. So I know racism when I see it. I grew up surrounded by it, and I consider myself very fortunate to now live in a culture that has worked hard to eradicate this cancer from our society. Nevertheless, I'm not inclined to take our progress for granted since individual attitudes of bias and intolerance can still potentially rear their ugly heads. That's why it made sense for Tulane to offer and encourage optional courses covering cultural sensitivity, diversity, and related issues for the faculty and staff. I consider these resources to be potentially quite helpful for clinical care since New Orleans is such a rich cultural heritage, but that's not what Tulane is promoting now. Over the summer, every member of the Department of Psychiatry was ordered to attend a day-long diversity, equity, and inclusion retreat. My turn came on October 1st, when my colleagues and I were subjected to seven hours of stereotyping and shaming it stigmatized white people as being responsible for the ongoing oppression of others and insisted that the only way Caucasians may demonstrate opposition to racism is to acknowledge and admit to being racist. I'm still scratching my head over that one. We also learned that oppressors are inherently distinguishable by simple observation of white skin color, male or cisgender sexual preference, 
traditional religious beliefs, English as a first language, Canadian or American nationality, privileged access to higher education, and other characteristics. The presentation included a handy checklist that allowed me to determine where I fall in the hierarchy of oppressors. We were essentially told that providing equity and access and outcome should be our goal in medicine rather than providing the best care to the patient in front of us. Really interesting, really scary stuff, uh, to say the least. Uh, downright frightening, actually. And uh, Robinson is the former president of the Louisiana Psychiatric Medical Association. So uh, he is definitely not a guy who is, uh, he's been around the block when it comes to his profession. I'll just put it that way. So it, it's really something to be hearing uh, stuff such as this from a guy like that. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, people might say, well, you know, talking about why there was, as we we're discussing the last item, the survey about diversity, equity, and inclusion, these sound like wonderful things. What's the problem with the survey to gauge what's going on with them? Well, the problem is you get stuff like this, such as what's being described at Tulane. And obviously this hampers productivity, uh, <laughs> productivity at a health sciences center where uh, being as productive as possible means uh, at the very least helping people lead better lives and uh, quite often saving people's lives. So very serious stuff here and DEI is uh, gumming up the works of it. Dr. Bob, anything to say about this article? Yeah. Um, I think that... Uh, <laughs> I like his uh, um, his animal farm reference there uh, in the middle. Uh, like I said, I mentioned the word Orwellian earlier, and uh, this is especially acutely felt in uh, academic medical centers where um, it, a private hospital or a private hospital system may have to pay lip service to this kind of stuff. And it's certainly infiltrating more, as you've seen uh probably in other sectors where uh, woke capitalism or woke capital has come in. Um, but this is especially acute in the academic uh, setting. As I mentioned in the last article, um, you have entire offices and entire divisions now of DEI that are being created where six-figure salaries are being you know, handed out uh, uh, like candy in some places. Uh, for professorships, for, you know, people with PhDs or uh, doctorates of education, not even PhDs in a lot of cases uh, that are coming in and telling physicians, you know, you're a racist and you're killing your patients and, you know, uh, because of your skin color or your religion or whatever, uh, you've caused irreparable damage and now it's time to atone for, uh, you know, your, your sins. I, I saw this in particular, um, when I was in medical uh, school, um, right before I started was when the whole hysteria, um, sort of the big first national hysteria um, uh, since probably Rodney King, and that was the Trayvon Martin uh, trial, which was down in your neck of the woods, if I'm, mm -hmm. uh, if I remember correctly. Yep. And um, I remember there was uh, this organization, White Coats for Black Lives, where you have these uh, medical students would dress up in their white coats and they would go into the middle of the street and they would have what was called a die-in and they would lay oh, down in yeah. the middle of the street. And this, you know, to me, a communist organization um, was basically coming in and not only getting official sanction for this kind of stuff, but then, you know, 
uh, now every medical school in the country has a DEI division. And um, I almost went to one of these uh, voluntary diversity trainings and it really was voluntary. I was not forced into this just to sort of run reconnaissance on this. Um, unfortunately, I did not have uh, the time to do that, but I've gotten a little bit of uh, the sort of an insider's take into this. And uh, all I will say is that every place where this is really tried and where you really put DEI in charge, uh, it turns out to be a disaster. I've seen entire departments hollowed out where half the faculty end up quitting because it becomes so intolerable. And then you see on the job pages, you know, 15 positions at one particular institution. And it's like, oh, what kind of, uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, uh, you know, a bomb has been dropped into the middle of that department and all that is left is the smoking wreckage of what was once potentially a proud, you know, department of medicine or surgery or, you know, whatever it might have been. Um, and now it's like people are fleeing for the hills because ultimately you can only fight against truth for so long and you can only push lies for so long until people reach their breaking point. And so long as we still have freedom of movement in this country, uh, whether that be among different academic institutions or, uh, you know, from academic to private um, institutions that get very heavily invested in this um, will lose their best people um, to places that will compensate them better and, you know, not uh, force feed them this stuff, uh, you know, 24, seven, 365, um, you know, the, some places that I've worked before, you see the, you know, the, the big, you know, uh, screens on TV as you're walking through and it's like, you know, celebrate black history month and, you know, help end systemic racism or, you know, you see the email, like, I stand with black lives and against, you know, systemic racism. And it's like, well, I stand with black lives is true as far as it goes, you know, it's a tautology, but it's the political statement that obviously is being loaded into this language. Obviously as a physician, I want to help every patient that comes across, you know, uh, my practice that uh, I have an opportunity to interact with. I, you know, can honestly say when I'm treating patients, you know, I do my best not to see color. I do my best to like, okay, this is the condition that they have. This is the treatment that needs to be done. Um, this is the diagnosis that, you know, needs to be made objectively. Um, and uh, that's the way that I try to, you know, practice medicine. And even when we acknowledge differences in different populations, I want that to be evidence-based. I don't want to just say, oh, well, this person, you know, is Asian, so they're at a higher propensity for this. It's like, well, what's the evidence behind having a higher propensity for this particular disease? We should be doing our homework as physicians, but that's not what these people want. As um, the, uh, the good uh, uh, physician, Dr. Robinson there from uh, Tulane uh, is quoting, and I will say uh, real quick, Joseph, I, I kind of got a kick is like, I can't believe we're actually quoting a National Review article uh, positively. Uh, <laughs> you know, given uh, prior conversations with Dr. Gottfried and some of, other, uh, <laughs> some of your other guests, but this is a really good story that they put out. Mm -hmm. Very, yeah. very courageous of them. Yeah, that did run across my mind, the irony of this. And it, but it was a good story that they put out. I'm very glad they did. 
And uh, it's very substantive. You know, Robinson is a, a psychiatrist who has a lot to say, and I'm glad he said it. And I do give credit to National Review for running it, even though National Review is most certainly not on my favorite publications list. I'll just put it that way. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, this is an important article. I highly recommend that people check it out. It once again is titled Woke Insanity Detected in Another Patient, Tulane School of Medicine. Uh, and now, Dr. Bob, as we unfortunately close out the discussion, I hate to do it, but the time is coming or it, it has come and we're just acknowledging it now. Uh, but what is the one thing that gives you the greatest degree of concern about the foreseeable future of uh, America's medical industry? Um, that's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of different avenues. Um, I'll get, you know, philosophical or religious in my own, uh, you know, way here at the end. I think the loss of truth um, and that manifests in multiple different ways. Um, the setting aside of evidence-based medicine, um, the setting aside of objective data for medical school admissions and merit meritocracy, um, and also, you know, promotion, all those sorts of things. Um, the unsubstantiated, uh, unsubstantiated pushing of DEI initiatives and DEI narratives, um, that systemic racism is the ultimate cause for health disparities and such. Um, but I think all of these are related to um, a bigger cultural issue. The problem that we have in this country, and I heard it best, is I think it was Governor Mike Huckabee who uh, said it many years ago after he had lost you know, a lot of weight. And regardless of what you think about, you know, his candidacy for presidency or anything like that in the past, uh, he did have a monumental turnaround in his personal life where he dropped, you know, at least 100 pounds, you know, reversed diabetes, you know, at least in his personal life, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, powerful story. Um, and uh, one of the things that he would talk about is like, I did not have a health care problem. I had a health problem. And as our society becomes more unhealthy, not just physically, but also mentally, spiritually, um, that is going to manifest itself downstream in pathologies within the healthcare system at large. Um, so that's the doom saying right there. But being a, a Christian who believes that uh, Christ will uh, set all things right in the end, I do give uh, one uh, kernel of hope, and that is the earlier point I was making about the, the pushback especially against transgenderism uh, as an ideology um, within uh, certain sectors of the medical profession and uh, by concerned parents. Um, like, now you're harming my child. This has gone way too far. We are denying reality to such a degree that it's unsustainable. And so you're seeing pushback in that area. Um, and so I think there is some hope. Uh, there are physicians like this who are starting to speak out. Um, one of the things that's, you know, I guess kind of concerning about that, though, is that most of these physicians that are speaking out, like Dr. Robinson in the last uh, piece, is that he has 37 years of experience in psychiatry. Most of these are older physicians who are mm -hmm. speaking out who are well on the way to retirement. Um, I think what it's going to take is younger physicians, um, who do have something to lose, but who realize that uh, we have so much more to lose if we don't speak out. Um, 
And so that's why, you know, came onto your show today to, you know, talk to you about some of these issues, because I think it is important for physicians in my generation um, to speak out. And it's like, no, we're not all woke. We don't all buy into these ideologies. Some of us actually do believe in the traditional principles of medical ethics and in evidence-based medicine and um, in learning how to disagree um, with colleagues that uh, we respect, but still remain friends, um, still remain professional and still remain colleagues. Um, and to really recapture, um, you know, some of the things that made medicine great, recognizing that, of course, there were shortcomings in the past, um, but that uh, um, we have a lot, to, uh, a great heritage uh, to look back upon as physicians uh, as we move forward into the future. So um, it is a very uh, dire circumstance we find ourselves in as a profession. Um, but it is not beyond hope. Well, that is very uh, realistic yet upbeat uh, <laughs> way to conclude your commentary, Dr. Bob. This has been a profoundly important episode. I mean, no episode of the show I think is worth missing. I'll put it that way. But this, we, we really discussed some things here that I think are of immense relevance to anyone, regardless of which walk of life they come from. And I'm very uh, glad that, that we were able to to address all these things that, that we did. And it should go without mention that I very much hope you will return to the show. There is no shortage of stuff to discuss. And uh, I very much hope we can chat about it down the road, not terribly far down the road either. Of course, that sounds good. And uh, uh, I would be remiss if I uh, did not ask you to uh, send my regards to uh, the good Dr. Godfrey. Next time you uh, talk to him, I need to email him as well. Uh, and uh, I want to uh, wish uh, the viewers uh, a very good shalom and a, a good rest of their Lord's Day. <laughs> uh, Dr. Bob is uh, obviously a devoted Christian, but he discovered uh, fairly recently that he has a substantial degree of Jewish background. So shalom to Dr. Bob. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it, it's something else. Actually, he and I, even though uh, our ancestry differs in, in, in many respects, there is a big similarity where he has quite a bit of Anglo-Saxon heritage and the Jewish heritage, and I have in part Anglo-Irish, which is English, uh, and then uh, Jewish heritage, among other things. So it's really interesting that uh, that uh, despite our differences in terms of, of religion, uh, we're a member of the same party, but differences in terms of religion, uh, we have these similarities and uh, we're able to find common ground where we disagree. And that's the way it should be, people finding common ground. But for reasons we brought up during this discussion, it's harder and harder to do so. And it only looks like less and less people are going to be interested in this, particularly younger ones as time passes, which is frightening, uh, put mildly. Yes. Well, once again, Joseph, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I wish all your viewers, uh, um, you know, best, uh, best health and, uh, you know, stay healthy out there, folks. Try not to try to interact with the medical profession as, uh, uh, little as you can. And I think mm. every good doctor, good doctor from every age would say that, uh, do the things that you need to do to keep yourself healthy, uh, recognizing, yes, eventually you will have to come into contact with us. Um, but, uh, be doing all those little things in your personal life and, uh, hope, uh, all of you stay, uh, as happy and healthy as you may.
Well, I, I, I'm someone who does not like coming into contact with uh, medical doctors very often, but I've had to recently, and I had a very good experience. The same thing with the nurses and the care technicians. So I raise my glass to all uh, care, medical care providers and to everyone who watched the show. Take it easy. Have a great night and cheers.